0: This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Well, guys, you ain't getting those packages mailed in time. They're New Year's gifts now. Should have listened to me weeks ago. Regardless of what winter holiday you're celebrating, or if you actually shipped your packages in time, I hope you have a good day. Enjoy your weekend. Spend some time with your family if you have family you don't totally hate. I'd be down in Arizona with my grandma if I didn't work at this place that is notoriously busy during December, but instead I'm likely chained to a desk right now, making way more money than a person should for the kind of work I do. Since I'm not sure what holiday y'all celebrate, I'll just say this. From the bottom of my heart, Happy, fucking, whatever. I love y'all and I genuinely hope you have a good winter celebration, whatever it is. My personal experiences with the court system, as well as many hours of research for this podcast have taught me that they don't always get it right. Hell, I've done several episodes on how they get it wrong. Child abusers promise to get it together and end up getting their kids back. Pedophiles get slapped on the wrist when they're caught and don't spend more than a couple years behind bars. Murderers often walk away with plea deals that spare their lives and sometimes let them back into our society. It's a flawed system, one that we all agree to deal with because we don't want to end up in its grasp. Some crimes, though, affect people so badly that they have to take the law into their own hands. The system doesn't help them. The system doesn't quench that thirst for justice. In fact, the system lets people down more often than not. This is why some individuals affected by crime choose to exact their revenge instead of asking the state to do it for them. Today's episode probably ain't gonna have any last meals in it, I apologize for that, but it's a topic that I've wanted to talk about since before this podcast was even a thing. Today, we're looking at something very controversial. For legal reasons, I'm going to state now that I don't condone it. Buckle the fuck up, my dudes, because today we're looking at cases of vigilante justice. Back in the main episode, I talked about a kid named Stephen Marshall. Some would argue that he did the world a favor by picking a few men off the sex offender registry and shooting them to death. No one likes pedophiles, not even God. Stephen never had his day in court to show why he thought his actions were justified. He executed himself before the cops could get him. This first guy I'm gonna talk about had his own reasons for doing what he did. In my humble, biased opinion, I believe he had a hell of a lot more justification for his actions than Stephen Marshall. Jason Vukovich was born in Anchorage, Alaska, in late June of 1975 to a mother who apparently wasn't very stable. At some point after the birth of her sons, she married a man named Larry Lee Fulton. He was not the biological father of Jason or his brother Joel, but would adopt the boys when Jason was four. I'd say I'm a child of divorce, but my parents were never married. Eight years of misery together. Three of those years were spent trying to have me. I don't know what the fuck either of them was thinking. I'm happy to be here on Earth, but holy fuck, if there are two people that should not have procreated, it was them. And my dad had my brother a couple years before me, so he should have known better than to get a stripper pregnant. I know it sounds like I'm joking, but I'm being totally legit. My mom and my brother's mom were both strippers. I kind of got off on a tangent there, but my point was... I had step parents. The bitch my dad married is the textbook definition of an evil stepmother. My stepdad, God rest his soul, was wonderful. He was never married to my mom, but they lived together for almost 13 years before he died, so that has to count for something. A good step parent is there for you, in all the ways your biological parents are supposed to be. They show up for choir concerts, buy you a PS2 for Christmas that one year. Tell you that your boyfriend can't stay overnight, even though he already knocked you up and no more damage can be done. I miss you, Rocky. You were more of a parent than either of my actual parents ever even dreamed of being. Anyway, I was lucky to have a cool stepdad. Jason Vukovic was not. Larry Fulton was a Christian man and took his family to church as often as he could. Religion is often a curtain for sick bastards to hide behind. Fulton began abusing Jason and his brother Joel, physically and sexually. He would use late-night prayer sessions to molest Jason. Fulton would beat him with belts and pieces of wood. That's just fucking terrible, but it gets worse. Jason's mother, who is nameless in the articles I'm using for research, stood by and let the abuse continue. Somehow, I'm not really sure how, Fulton was charged with second-degree abuse of a minor in 1989. This is where the story should end. But he served no prison time. He was given a three-year suspended sentence and went back to live with his family. Jason and Joel got tired of the abuse eventually and ran away as teenagers. Jason left home with no job prospects or even identification. That's how desperate he was to get away from his abuser. This, unfortunately, led to a life of stealing to survive. He traveled around the northwestern part of the U.S. and had criminal records in five different states. Sometime in 2008, he moved back to Alaska. His crimes continued here, and he was charged with drug possession, theft, and assault on his wife. That last one was something he denied, but I can't find anything on it to point me in either direction. Childhood trauma is a fucking bitch, let me tell ya. Jason had a hell of a lot more issues than I did. In 2016, his untreated mental issues hit a breaking point. He started reading over the Alaska Sex Offender Registry and sought out three men who had landed themselves on that list for crimes against children. Three names were written down in his notebook. Andres Barbosa, convicted of possession of child pornography, Charles Albee, convicted of second-degree sexual abuse of a minor, and Wesley Demarest, convicted of attempted sexual abuse of a minor. Jason didn't know any of these men personally, but their crimes were enough to send him into a rage. The first to have an encounter with Jason was Charles Albee, on the morning of June 25th, 2016, Jason showed up to his house and knocked on the door. When Alby answered, Jason pushed him inside and made him sit on his bed before slapping him across the face several times. This was arguably the worst that Alby got during this ordeal. Jason told him he knew what he'd done and how he'd managed to find the man's address. He then robbed Alby and left the property. Like I said earlier, for legal reasons, I don't condone this. But in my humble, biased, right-leaning libertarian opinion, I'll be got off easy. Two days after this first altercation, Jason and two female accomplices entered the home of Andres Barbosa at around 4 a.m. Barbosa had been convicted of kidnapping and possession of child sexual abuse images in 2014. Jason threatened the man with a hammer and told him to sit down. Barbosa was punched in the face and warned that Jason would cave his skull in if he didn't do as he was told. One of the unnamed female accomplices filmed on her cell phone as Jason assaulted Barbosa. Before leaving, they robbed him and also stole his truck. He walked away with his life, though, which is more than any pedophile deserves. As I'm sure you probably guessed, the crime spree wasn't over just yet. At 1 a.m. on June 29th, just two days after Barbosa's attack, Jason broke into the home of Wesley Demarest. This guy had been convicted in 2006 of attempting to sexually abuse a minor. Not sure the age of this person, but honestly, that's kind of irrelevant. Jason ordered Demarest to lay down on his bed, but he wouldn't listen. Jason then told him to get on his knees, but you guessed it, he refused. This resulted in a strike to the face with a hammer and a skull fracture. Jason told him, I'm an avenging angel. I'm going to mete out justice for the people you hurt and then stole a handful of items from the man before leaving his house. Demarest survived this attack and called police after waking up covered in his own blood. Jason was not a difficult man to find. He was sitting in his car a few blocks from Demarest's house when police arrived. Inside the car, they found a hammer, stolen items, and a notebook with the names and addresses of all three victims written down and crossed off. Jason was arrested then and there and charged with a total of 18 counts of assault, robbery, burglary, and theft. His initial plan was to plead not guilty and take it to trial, but he opted to try for a plea deal instead. If you don't remember, all the way back in Alaska, they don't have the death penalty. Never did, after becoming a state. This isn't a death penalty case by any means. No one died. You'd think that Jason would get off relatively easy, right? This man went out exacting revenge on pedophiles that the state had let back into society. In a perfect world, convicted pedophiles would be executed. Jason Christian Vukovic pled guilty to one count of first-degree attempted assault and one count of first-degree robbery and was sentenced to 28 years in prison. The prosecution agreed to dismiss over a dozen of the other charges and also gave him five of those 28 years suspended and five years probation for going out and doing the job that the state was too cowardly to do. Was Jason in the right here? For legal reasons, no, he was not. For moral reasons, no comment. This man had been abused by a pedophile as a kid and had a deep-rooted hatred for people who victimized children. What he did was wrong, but it was understandable. Our justice system doesn't deal with these people the way it should. In a letter he wrote to the Anchorage Daily News, Jason said, I thought back to my experiences as a child. I took matters into my own hands and assaulted three pedophiles. If you have already lost your youth, like me, due to a child abuser, Please do not throw away your present and your future by committing acts of violence. Jason has tried to appeal his sentence a handful of times. You'd think that a judge, knowing of this man's past abuse and current PTSD, would take it into consideration, but he didn't. The Alaskan Avenger, as Jason became known, was told in an appeal hearing that vigilantism won't be accepted in our society. Apparently, pedophilia will, though. Petitions are available online in support of Jason. A lot of people think he didn't do anything wrong and believe that he should be free again. As of the time of writing, he's still stuck with that full sentence. My husband suggested a case to me that I wasn't sure about including because of how well-known it is, but I think I'm going to because it's very relevant to the topic. I think by now it's clear how I feel about pedophiles. As you know if you're a fan of this podcast, I've had a handful of encounters with sick fucks, that guy from Maine when I was 15, the guy in the truck who kept driving by me when I was 4 or 5, but there's one I don't think I've told you about yet one that really fucked me up. When I was 17 and pregnant with my oldest living child, I didn't know what I wanted in this life. That's a story for another day. But what's important is that I was single and had put my fine ass back on the market. 82 was the new 74. Go watch Family Guy if you don't understand that. I had mutual Facebook friends with this metalhead guy, who seemed decent enough. He asked me on a date despite the 8 year age difference. I agreed, because free food is free food. I was close enough to 18 that it didn't really phase me, like literally two months away from my birthday the first time we went out. Back then, I was colorblind and couldn't see red flags. Anyway, I go out with this dude a few times, things get serious after a bit, he moves into my house, and I start to see what a piece of shit he is. He's always drunk constantly doing coke at his friend's house, comes home late, wakes me up despite knowing I'm pregnant and need to rest. He was just a genuinely shitty person. So I dumped his ass right before New Year's and told him to get the fuck out of my house. He trashed his room before leaving and vowed to never date anyone under the age of 21 again. That was his way of venting to Facebook without admitting that he'd been sleeping with a 17 year old. Well, years pass, and my mother sends me a news article about a man who was arrested for trying to meet 14-year-old girls off the internet for sex. Guess who it was? Dude admitted to the cops that he was interested in girls as young as 12, and that he thought he was a danger to the public. You know what he got? Released. He's out there walking the streets, a free man, because this system is broken. Had I been even dumber than I was when I was 17, my oldest daughter could have fallen victim to this psychopath. But I'm telling you, I have a hell of an intuition. I knew something was up with that dude, and I wish I never would have agreed to that steak dinner. Live and learn, kids. People are fucked. But that little story ties in a bit to the next case I'm going to talk about. If you're a fan of Count Dankula, then the name Gary Plowshare will ring a bell. This man actually deserves the Father of the Year award. The name gives it away, but Gary was from Baton Rouge, Luzerana. He had been married to a woman named June, and they had a son named Jody. Between 1983 and 1984, Jody was taking karate lessons from a 25-year-old man named Jeffrey Doucette. I'm assuming also a Luzerana native because those Cajun bastards really love their French roots. What the Plouchets didn't know was that doucet had been molesting jody on valentine's day of 1984 doucet kidnapped jody and took him to california while there he sexually abused the boy i'm not sure what his plans were but he ended up being caught after he allowed jody to call his mom from the motel they were staying at in anaheim police in california set up a raid and jody was recovered without incident About two weeks after he was kidnapped, Jody was brought back to Louisiana to be with his parents. Gary Plouchet was devastated that Doucette had sexually abused his son. He told an interviewer that the knowledge of this made him feel helpless. On March 16, 1984, Doucette arrived back in Baton Rouge to face his trial. As he was led off the plane by police at around 9.30 p.m., Gary Plouchet was there to greet him. An employee of a local ABC News affiliate had informed Gary of the time Doucette was supposed to arrive. A news crew from this station was there to catch a glimpse of the accused man as he arrived back from California. Near where this news crew had set up, there was a cluster of payphones. Gary was using one of these to talk to his best friend as he waited for Doucette. Seems innocent enough, I guess. Until I bring up that Gary was wearing a baseball cap and sunglasses to avoid being recognized. Doucette walked past the news crew and was caught completely off guard by a gunshot to the right side of his head. Gary set the phone down and was restrained by a police officer. This man took the law into his own hands. As a parent, I know I would not react well to someone hurting my kids, especially in this way. So I empathize with Gary Plouchet, definitely. As they kept him secured against the payphones, the police repeatedly asked him, why, Gary? I think you know why, officer. It ain't difficult to see. We have a broken system in this country. Doucette didn't die immediately. He slipped into a coma and left this earth the next day. The charge started out as second degree murder, but Gary agreed to plead no contest to manslaughter. In complete contrast to Alaska, He was given a sentence that actually makes sense. Surprised the shit out of me, though. He got a seven-year suspended sentence, five years of probation, and 300 hours of community service. Gary completed this in 1989. Anyone who looked at the facts of this case was able to see that Gary was not a danger to the public. The only person he was a danger to was the man who had sexually abused his son. Judge Frank Sias said during his ruling that sending Gary to prison wouldn't help anyone, and that he was no risk to the public. Holy shit, guys. A judge that actually uses logic to make a decision. We don't have those in Utah, so it's kind of a weird thing for me to see. Gary said in an interview that he had no regrets and would go back and kill Doucette again. Leon Gary Plouchet died of a stroke in 2014. He was 68 when he died, which is not a particularly long life, but it could be argued that it was a very full life. Many TV shows and documentaries featured the crime that Gary committed. The footage of the shooting can be found online pretty easily, so if that's what you're into. You've all heard me say a million times that some murders can be justified. This is definitely one of them, and I'm comfortable saying that because even the judge agreed that Gary wasn't a threat to the public. He was only a threat to the man who hurt his son. It seems that a lot of these types of cases are parents killing pedophiles who hurt their children. I wonder why. Could it be that we have a broken system and sex offenders almost always walk away with a slap on the wrist and a second chance? Or is it just that these parents are violent psychopaths who want to exact their revenge instead of letting the justice system handle it? Another American parent decided to take the law into her own hands in the early 90s, likely fearing that the man on trial wouldn't get what he deserved if she didn't. Ellie Nestler was born on August 2nd, 1952. My Arizona grandma is literally four days younger than her, so I can imagine what she was like as a person. People of this era have a way about them that I really enjoy. My mother used to call me an old soul. I think I'm just old all around. I don't have a lot of information about Ellie's early life, but by 1993, she was a single mom to two kids Rebecca, who was eight, and William, who was 11. Ellie was in court on the day of April 2nd, 1993, to watch the man who was accused of molesting William face his punishment. No one knew that Ellie herself would be handing out that sentence. Daniel Driver was an employee at a church camp. I have no idea why he was allowed to work in a place where children attended, as he had previous convictions for child molestation. Was this a Catholic church camp? Sorry, couldn't help myself. Not all cat-holics are pedos. Either way, when he was in court on that fateful April day, it was to face charges for molesting four boys. One of them was William Nessler, who was just six when he was sodomized and molested by Driver. I found a psychiatric evaluation of Driver from 1983, and holy fuck, I just do not understand the legal system. After pleading guilty to two counts of child molestation, Driver sat down with a psychiatrist and continuously smiled during the interview. The report concluded that he often smiled when he was nervous, that he could benefit from psychotherapy, and that he should be considered for probation. A pedophile considered for probation. How many times do I have to say that people who hurt other people shouldn't be let out early? In the psychiatric report, Dr. Charles Casella stated that Driver was very eager to please others, but would react angrily when his expectations of gratification in return weren't fulfilled. I understand how it feels to do everything for someone, or a group of someone's, and get nothing in return. It hurts. But I've come to accept that it's just the way things are sometimes. I'm always very appreciative when my son tells me thanks mom mom after i get him something sorry about that little tangent i don't get out much so i don't have anyone to complain to aside from you lovely listeners i react to a lack of appreciation with sadness driver reacted with anger he went on to blame the mother of one of the boys for his actions saying that it was an outburst of anger toward the woman for this first set of crimes he walked away with a sentence of 150 days in jail, probation, and a $750 fine. Is your fucking blood boiling yet? It's no surprise to me the driver was back in court looking at more counts of molestation. These people don't change. The only cure for pedophilia is a bullet. Ellie Nestler knew this. On that fateful April day, she went into court packing heat. Something we aren't allowed to do anymore, probably because of cases like this. During a short recess, Ellie walked up behind driver and fired five shots into the back of his head. It later came out that she was high on meth at the time of the crime. I usually just laugh at tweakers and the dumb shit they do, but I'm gonna take her side on this one. Meth makes you paranoid as fuck on its own, so I can only imagine the shit going through her head while she was in that courtroom. I get tunnel vision every time I walk into a courtroom. Or even when we have to do it over Zoom. Add some amphetamines in there and the world would turn inside out. Ellie was charged with voluntary manslaughter and ended up with a 10-year prison sentence. She was released after serving just four of those years. This is one situation where they should actually let out violent offenders. Much like Gary Ploucher, Ellie was no danger to the public. Thankfully, the courts could see that. While in prison, Ellie and her kids spoke with Oprah about the crime. Ellie told her, I am sorry that I killed someone and that I'm not with my children. But on the other hand, I wish the judicial system would have taken care of it. I wish I wouldn't have had to. Y'all know I have no actual experience with this situation. I only speak from how I would feel if something like this happened to me. But Ellie went through the shit herself. We need to listen to people who actually go through this Had the justice system not failed she wouldn't have felt the need to shoot daniel driver and put an end to his pedophilic actions elena star nestler died of breast cancer on december 26 2008. the worst part of this case is how badly william was affected by what had happened to him as a child Both Rebecca and William had been sent to live with other family members after their mom went to prison. During this time, William acted out and was then sent away to boot camps in an attempt to straighten him out. He needed help, but no one knew how to help him. Ellie said she regretted not being there for her kids. In 2004, William murdered a man by stomping him to death in a fit of rage. He's currently serving 28 years to life for this. I decided to look him up, and he has a parole suitability hearing scheduled for December of 2028. Oprah, being the objective journalist she is, made it a point to blame Ellie for her children's suffering, saying to Rebecca, you all suffered because your mom, in an act of rage in the courtroom, didn't want to see that molester go free again. I feel for Rebecca, I really do. A lot of why I haven't snapped and either taken my own life or done something to get thrown in prison is because I don't want my kids to have to go through this kind of shit. I'm here for them. Ellie was, too. She just made a messed up decision that ended up doing an equal amount of harm and good. On one hand, a child molester is no longer on this earth. On the other hand, two kids lost their mom. This entire thing could have been avoided if Daniel Driver was given a proper sentence. Rebecca told Oprah that she's had a hard time moving on with her life because her mom and brother have both been in prison for most of it. She's now married with children of her own but said that she wishes Ellie and William could be there to enjoy the big milestones with her. I'm trying real hard to find some variety here, but I'm telling you hell hath no fury like that of a parent whose child was hurt by a monster. I don't know if it's the same for fathers, but giving birth to a child flips a switch inside you that you didn't know you had. My first baby didn't make it into this world, but even just knowing that there was a child inside my guts changed my entire outlook on life and the world. My subsequent children have further cemented the maternal instinct that my first baby gave me. I would kill and die for my kids, but I'm not the only one. Mariana Bachmeier was born on June 3, 1950, in Saarstedt, Germany. Her parents had moved to this small town near Hildesheim in West Germany shortly after World War II. Mariana's parents were very religious and raised their daughter in a conservative household. Like many other families in this era, the Bachmeyers were led by an alcoholic father, who spent most of his time at a nearby bar. He had previously been a member of the Waffen-SS, and was a very domineering man. Alcohol obviously made this worse. Mariana had a rough childhood, and her parents eventually divorced. This led to her being a troubled teenager, and she was eventually kicked out of the house. In 1966, at the age of 16, Mariana welcomed her first child into the world. Likely knowing she wasn't ready for motherhood, she placed the baby up for adoption. Two years later, she became pregnant again, and once again decided that it would be best for the baby to be adopted by another family in 1972 mariana started dating the manager of the pub she worked in at the ripe old age of 22 she became pregnant again on november 14 1972 anna bachmeyer was born mariana decided to raise her alone fun story My mother worked at a bar for a little while. Kind of weird, but this bar is literally walking distance from where my friend Twitch lives. While she worked there, she didn't have me in school, so I'd just go sit at the bar while she worked and play video poker. I was like 7 or 8. If you're wondering why I wasn't in school, it's because she didn't want to put me in public school and couldn't find a decent private school that she could afford. My life story would make a great movie. I'm not sure how I turned out as okay as I did, Anyway, I brought that up because, like my mother, Mariana often took her daughter to work with her. She did it because she didn't want to have to rush home from work after her shifts. I get this, if I didn't look like a walking pincushion, I probably would have tried to get a job at a daycare, so I could take my kids with me. Shit's expensive, that's why I work nights, someone's always home. In two documentaries that would be made in 1984, Mariana was portrayed as a terrible parent who worked long into the night and slept during the day, leaving Anna to fend for herself. And this pisses me off. I've worked a night shift since like 2018, I think. It used to be early evenings until 2am, now it's graveyards. I sleep during the day. This has often made me feel like a shitty mom because there are times when I will put a movie on for my son so I can take a nap. Night shift zombies are doing their best, and it always gets on my nerves when we're judged for working weird hours, as if we have a choice. Another option is to sleep in your child's room, so you are there if they need something. Air mattresses are a godsend. Friends of Mariana would go on to say that she treated her daughter like a little adult, expecting her to take care of a lot of things by herself. I don't judge Mariana for working nights at a bar but I will judge the fuck out of her for putting her party lifestyle above the well-being of her child. Anna was often forced to sleep in the bar because her mother wanted to stay out later. Anna was a bright child, brought into an environment that would dull her spark. On May 5th, 1980, when Anna was just seven years old, she got into an argument with her mother and made the decision to skip school. Sounds a lot like my early life, to be honest. While out in the world, she ran into 35-year-old Klaus Grabowski, who she had met before. Anna had been to his house before because he had cats that she liked to play with. Grabowski was a convicted sex offender and had opted to be chemically castrated. Later on in life, he went back on this decision and tried to reverse it by taking hormones. Grabowski held Anna at his house for several hours where he sexually assaulted her, and eventually strangled her with a pair of his fiance's tights. After this, he tied her up, put her in a box, and left her on the shore of a canal. His fiance was wasn't going to cover for him, though. She turned him into the police. Rather than be a man and accept what he'd done, Grabowski told the cops that it was Anna's idea to extort money from him by claiming that he'd abused her. His fear of going back to prison was what made him kill the girl, Never mind that he was a convicted pedophile, that definitely had nothing to do with it. On March 6th, 1981, Grabowski's trial was on its third day. Mariana had been attending the trial and made the decision to smuggle a Beretta 70 into the courtroom. I see we have German Ellie Nessler here. I really did try to bring you a variety with this episode, but vigilantes apparently go for the worst kind of people. On that fateful day in the Lubeck District Court, Mariana aimed her gun at Grabowski before shooting him six times. Seven shots were fired, but one apparently missed. He was hit in the back and killed almost instantly. Mariana immediately lowered her gun and was taken into custody without incident. This story, as I'm sure you probably guessed, was a hit in the media. Reporters traveled to Lubeck from all over the world to cover it. Mariana later sold the rights to her life story for about 100,000 Deutschmarks. People initially had her back because who wouldn't agree with her taking out the trash? She published her story, and it came out that she'd put her first two children up for adoption. This, and her father's involvement with the SS, shifted public opinion of her from innocent mother to murderous monster. Despite this, she still had a few supporters who stood by her, The West German courts were criticized for allowing Grabowski to get his libido back with hormones. Contrary to popular belief, the court doesn't follow you around forever after you're convicted. Kinda feels like it sometimes, trust me on that. But they couldn't watch him all the time. Mariana was sentenced to six years in prison, but only served half of that time. This is one situation where I won't criticize light sentences. She shouldn't have gone to prison at all. The German legal system should have kept Grabowski locked up where he belonged, instead of letting him out with a chemical castration. In 1985, Mariana married a teacher and moved to Ghana with him. They lived in a camp where her husband taught at a German school. They divorced just five years later, and Mariana moved to Sicily. She worked at a hospice center for a while before being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. After this, she moved back to Germany. She did a handful of interviews in the 90s and openly admitted to killing Grabowski because she wanted to take the law into her own hands and prevent him from spreading lies about her daughter. She never showed any remorse for her actions. To be honest with you, I wouldn't either. Mariana Bachmeyer died of pancreatic cancer on September 17, 1996. She spent her final moments at a hospital in Lübeck. Her final resting place is a plot in the Bergtor Cemetery in Lübeck next to her daughter Anna. Many documentaries and movies were made about her life, including the movie Der Fall Bachmeier, Keine Zeit für Training, and the documentary Selbstjustiz einer Mutter, Der Fall Mariana Bachmeier. Y'all know I only included those to show off my awesome American accent. But there is no shortage of content about her life if you're interested. Kakdi la, tovarishi. I know y'all are sick and tired of people killing pedophiles. Or maybe you're not. You shouldn't be. But I have one last case of vigilantism that has nothing to do with pedophiles. I am sticking with the international theme, though. This time, we're traveling all the way to the city of Yekaterinburg, Russia. This city is located in the western half of Russia, pretty close to Kazakhstan. Just north of Yekaterinburg lie the Ural Mountains. Mountains. (laughs) If you're a fan of weird dark ambient music, I will link an album in the description that was written about an incident that happened in the northern Ural Mountains. If you're conspiracy-minded, maybe you've heard of Dyatlov Pass, What a fucking crazy thing that was. But we're not here to talk about conspiracies. This isn't the last weird nuclear test podcast. So let me tell you a little story about the Russian mafia. Yekaterinburg was considered the gangster capital of Russia in the 90s. Many prisons and labor camps were located in the Ural Mountains. Apparently Russia restricts where convicts can live, so many of them ended up in Yekaterinburg. By the year 1992, four major criminal organizations were active in the city. From what my husband tells me, Russian criminal organizations are intertwined with the government. I can't say for sure if that's legitimate, but I wouldn't be surprised. These gangs put their money into casinos, industrial plants, and sports stores. Variety is the spice of life, I guess. One of these main organizations was the Uralmash gang. They were founded in the late 1980s by two brothers. During this time, the city of Yekaterinburg was transitioning to a free market economy. Everywhere should have this. Fuck communism. The Uralmash gang controlled several businesses in the city, including the Uralmash factory. Obviously, that's where they got their name. They were in the business of racketeering. The literal definition of this is dishonest and fraudulent business dealings. Profits earned from this were reinvested into some legitimate businesses. Again, variety is the spice of life. During the 90s, the Uralmash group got sucked into a handful of gang wars. One of these was an internal conflict between the more traditional criminals who followed the thieves' code and the sportsmen who ended up coming out on top. Another big battle was between the Uralmash and the central gangs. This was so devastating that both gangs had their own cemeteries. Headstones were very elaborate and often bore images of the dead dressed in 90s gangster fashion. Racketeering wasn't the only thing the gang was involved in. During the 90s, they joined a vigilante group called City Without Drugs, which aimed to get rid of heroin in Yekaterinburg. They beat up drug dealers to send a message, and addicts were chained to radiators and forced to quit cold turkey. I've never done heroin, but I used to listen to a podcast called Dopey that was recovery-focused, and I have heard millions of stories about withdrawal. It's not fun, comparable to torture. The Vori, who were Ruskaya Mafia, who had become made men, ended up in a gang war with the Uralmash that led to explosions, kidnappings, torture, and assassinations. They formed their own hit squad that featured former Soviet special forces and other military men to kill their opponents. But before you go judging the Uralmash for their shitty actions, I should probably tell you that they also organized fashion shows to raise money for kids in the city. As you may be aware if you're a fan of this podcast, One good deed makes up for infinite terrible actions. That's clearly a joke. By the beginning of the new millennium, the leaders of the Uralmash had legitimized their business even more. Their income as a group far exceeded that of the entire city of Yekaterinburg. They eventually went on to become a registered political party, the social political union Uralmash. In the late 2000s, some of their members were still engaged in criminal activity. A lot of businesses had to pay them protection money. I know things are different here in the States. It's widely known and accepted that the government and criminals are intertwined. Epstein didn't kill himself and all that. Russia apparently doesn't appreciate the underbelly of society quite as much as us Amerikanskis. Alexander Kukovyakin was detained by Interpol in Dubai in 2015. He was the crime boss of OPS Uralmash. He was extradited back to Yekaterinburg, and all his shenanigans only landed him five years in prison. During a mayoral campaign in 2013, a man named Yevgeny Roizman was accused of having ties to Uralmash as well. I think we can all agree that in Soviet Russia, crime prevents government. That was a half-hearted attempt at a Yakov Smirnoff joke. (laughs) I appreciate Russian culture, especially their music and food. I'd say about 90% of my favorite black metal comes out of Russia, and their rappers are far superior to anyone in the U.S. Maybe that's the residual vodka flowing through my veins, though. I know I ended on a flat note there, but it's close to Christmas and I felt like I should end this episode with something cold and dark rather than pedophiles being shot in courtrooms and airports. Vigilantes really do seem to target those who deserve it the most, though. It was a challenge to find anything aside from parents who knew the justice system was a failure. The lesson we should all take from this episode is that child molesters shouldn't be let back out into society, even if they opt to be chemically castrated. There is no cure for pedophilia, aside from a bullet. And again, for legal reasons, I'm going to say that I do not condone vigilante justice. But condoning it and understanding it are two completely different things. Don't go out killing pedos because you can't. Just check the sex offender registry in your area and be aware of who lives near you. Taking them out because the government was too afraid to do it is not worth spending your life in prison. If you enjoyed this episode, write the link to it on a bathroom stall. In a bar, in a truck stop. Hell, write it at your local Denny's. Or Tim Hortons if you're Canadian. I've been working on a couple different things, like live streaming and a missing persons YouTube channel. So keep your eyes peeled for those. Again, it's live at work season, so you can't expect too much from me. But I have a lot planned for the future. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, for real. Let's make 2024 our bitch. God knows I'm ready to leave 2023 in a fiery pit where it belongs. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at Last Meal Pod. I'll be back hopefully next week with an episode about a state that is full of death penalty cases. I'm going to end this one with a quote from a man named Kenneth Eid. No idea who he is, but he made a fantastic point that sums this episode up beautifully. When the law fails to serve us, we must serve as the law. See you next time.